0: Hi everyone, I'm Jill Smokler and I've got issues. I've got a ton of issues actually, and I'm pretty sure you do too. And I'm positively sure we'll both feel better having talked about them. And that's what this podcast is all about. So let's get started. Dr. Jen Gunter is an obstetrician and gynecologist and author of The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto. She has been called Twitter's resident gynecologist, the internet's OBGYN, and one of the fiercest advocates for women's health. Her upcoming book, Blood, The Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation, will be published in January 2024.
1: So, you know, there's an average age of menopause, which is 51, you know, kind of in the same way there's an average age when people start their first period. But just like there's also a range when it's normal to start your first period, there's also a range when it's normal to have your last period. And that normal range is anywhere between age 45 and 55. So, you know, there is a period of time that leads up to the last period, which is called the menopause transition. And some people also call it perimenopause or premenopause. And that lasts kind of anywhere from four to 10 years. And the average onset for that is about 45. So there will be some women younger than 45 having symptoms uh, that are leading up to their menopause transition and other people aren't gonna be starting until later. And I know that the whole idea about not being able to give a hard start date or, a, you know, a time frame is really irritating to a lot of people. And I totally get that. Uh, we did go through that same thing when we went through puberty, right? Like everybody started puberty a different time. It lasted longer for different people. Some people had later growth spurts. Other people had earlier growth spurts.
0: Does that correlate to the onset of menopause when you first got your period?
1: Nope. It doesn't have anything related to it. They're actually biologically very different things with different triggers. Uh, But uh, and it's a good question. Lots of people ask it, but yeah. So I encourage people to try to think about it that way because we've all been through something that is similar in many ways.
0: Mm -hmm. What about your mom? If you look at her, is the onset usually generally similar?
1: There are some. So genetics definitely has a component, um, but environmental factors have a big component as well. In fact, you're more likely to have a similar age of menopause to a sister than to a mother. Because if you think about it, you and your sister were raised in the same household and you or your mother were not raised in the same household, right? So you may have had different nutritional exposures, different toxicant exposures, like cigarette smoke, things like that. And so uh, there definitely is a genetic component, um, but the link actually seems to be strongest with sisters versus uh, mothers.
0: Interesting. Okay. So how do you know that you are in peri or you have entered the pre-menopause stage? Is it just the Onset of all of the horrific symptoms. Um, I know that I am currently dealing with hot flashes at the most inopportune times, and crazy hair loss, and weight gain. And um, are those are those the most common? What are what are the foremost? Uh, symptoms of menopause?
1: Yeah. So hot flashes are certainly a common symptom, but the the most common early symptom is menstrual irregularity. So if people are describing other things that are happening to their body and they're not having menstrual irregularity, I would encourage people to look for another cause. One of the big problems that I'm seeing right now is basically everybody from the age of 35 up is blaming everything on menopause because it seems to be very trendy. And that's actually very harmful. You know, I'm seeing women in their late thirties who have Pretty much regular periods trying to start hormone therapy, and that's not the correct thing to do. So, the very earliest symptoms seem to start around the time when your periods are maybe starting to have more than seven days of lengthening in between, or even a shortening. So, you're starting to see a change. And when you notice that sort of early change, that would kind of be the the start of the early menopause transition. And as you get closer, to the final period, that's when symptoms tend to worsen. So two to three years before your final period, uh, or two years before, you're gonna be going usually 60 days. You might have, now that won't happen maybe every cycle, but once you start missing an entire period, right? So you're going at least 60 days, You know once a year or a couple of times a year between your cycles then you can probably count on menopause happening within the next couple of years and so for some people hot flashes can start before their period and can actually be worse before their last period and can actually be worse during that time frame but interesting for other people it can start more after their last period so there's that kind of degree of variation there Uh, people do describe hair loss in menopause although it's usually again closer to the final period because that isn't something that really happens until estrogen levels really change significantly. So it's important for people to remember that in, um, in the menopause transition, um, often estrogen levels are higher than they were before, right? So things that are associated with estrogen deficiency per se often happen more after the um, the last period. Uh, although hot flashes, even though they're well treated with estrogen, you know, it's such a complex biological thing that it's probably more than just you know low levels because there's you know obviously people that get them before their final period.
0: Interesting. So I should have prefaced my question since I personally listed my symptoms. I had a hysterectomy about ten years ago. Mm I don't have a uterus, but I do have my ovaries, which Mm -hmm. makes this menopause thing very confusing to me because I don't have a period to track where I am in my cycle. And so how do you know if you're not, if like me, you haven't had a period and so you're not looking for those signs?
1: Well, so for the large part, it doesn't really matter because symptoms can start before your final period and we treat largely based on symptoms. It doesn't really matter. So if you're under age 45 and having really severe symptoms, we would recommend testing because that's early. uh, And we treat Early menopause a little bit different than we treat uh, normal menopause. So if you're under 45, you'd want to have a blood test to see if um, your your hormone levels kind of match with what's going on. That would actually be the same for someone who's got periods. We would say, "Huh, this seems like it's kind of early. We need to test it because you know what? There's other things that can cause irregular periods as well. So we want to make sure it's the menopause and not something else. If you're over 45 it doesn't matter. You're in the normal time when we'd expect it to happen. So if you're over 45 and you're starting to skip periods and having hot flashes or you're over 45 and you've had a hysterectomy and you're having hot flashes, we treat you the same way. Um, you are in the age range when we'd expect menopause to occur, and we treat based on symptoms. So, if you're having bad hot flashes or night sweats, and you're an appropriate candidate for estrogen, it would be totally fine to start. And if you're not having bothersome symptoms, then then that's okay too.
0: So, if you're if you're having if you are having bothersome symptoms and you want to get help, you go to your gynecologist.
1: Yeah, some internists also and some family doctors. So it depends on, you know, where you live in the country. So, you know, for example, I know a couple of internists that do an amazing job with um, with menopause care. Okay. I also know some OBGYNs that do a terrible job. So, you know, so it does depend a little bit on who you see and what their area of interest is. Um, there are some internal medicine doctors who do fellowships in women's health, and so they would know a lot more. Um, mm-hmm. There's some incredibly educated family doctors and nurse practitioners. Uh, so, you know, so, it really would depend on, um, on the person that you see.
0: Yep. And on your Instagram page, you talked about red flags with gynecologists that you should look out for. Can you talk about that if you're not getting the support from your doctor when it's time to seek another doctor or, you know, figure out next steps?
1: Yeah. So I think there's red flags on both ends of the spectrum. So there's red flags for gosh, you're not being taken seriously. And when should you move on to somebody else? But there's also red flags about you're getting bad care from somebody um, who is, you know, trying to tell you to take things or have tests that you, you don't need to have. So if you're going to see somebody and you're bothered with symptoms and you're having terrible hot flashes, or you're having vaginal dryness and your doctor tells you something like, Oh, it's just the price of being a woman, or, you know, that's just the way it is. And there's no treatment. You know, I would advise people to find a menopause practitioner through the menopause society. They used to be called the North American menopause society. And, you know, there are guidelines, they have guidelines on their website, look them up and, you know, and see, you know, kind of where you match in that, or hopefully you might consider my book, the menopause manifesto, or my, you know, my website, the agenda, where you can get a lot of information. So you can see, you know, did I get told the right thing? Uh, so, that's, that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is if you're over the age of 45 and your doctor's telling you, you need to have your hormones checked to see where you are, or they need to check your estrogen levels while you're on medication to follow you, those would be red flags to that you're getting bad care because we don't recommend that.
0: When we talk about hormones, is it adding estrogen because it has decreased because that's what it's doing during menopause?
1: Actually, that's not a good way to look at it because it's not a replacement. So your ovaries are meant to stop producing estrogen. That's the way we evolved. Uh, That's not a disease state. That's not an abnormality. That's the way it happened. Now, there are some symptoms that giving estrogen can treat and doesn't treat all the symptoms. So for example, hair loss is not treated with estrogen. Um, weight gain around the middle, not treated with estrogen. So these are complex biological processes. And sometimes they're triggered by change in estrogen levels, but not treated by that. And sometimes there's other hormone changes that happen at the same time as menopause. And sometimes it's those other hormone changes that are the trigger. And then sometimes there's also the aging process that's, you know, interspersed and all that as well. So it's important to think about if you want to treat with hormones, what are the symptoms that hormones can treat and then, and then go from there. So you should think of it not as a replacement, but as a treatment, as a therapy.
0: Okay. And how do you take the hormones? Is it purely in pill form? Is there another way that, that the therapy is, um, given?
1: So, uh, so again, so we recommend, um, estrogen therapy for, for people who said, so if you have a uterus, you also need a hormone called progesterone or progestin. Otherwise, the estrogen will give you uterine cancer eventually. And that Other hormone protects against it but if you've had a hysterectomy like you're saying you you don't need to have that. So what uh, the estrogen is given for hot flashes and night sweats and for people at very high risk for osteoporosis estrogen can also be used as a prevention there. There are also some other reasons where we sometimes try estrogen but they're not FDA approved for that reason and that requires more of a risk benefit discussion. It's not necessarily wrong to try but it's really hard to go through you know all of those nuances unless you're sort of sitting with somebody in the office. So say you're somebody with bad hot flashes or night sweats and you want to try estrogen, we recommend transdermal therapy as the first line. So that means a patch or a lotion or a spray. And we only recommend pharmaceutical preparations, meaning from a pharmaceutical company. We don't recommend the compounded products. There are all kinds of issues with compounding. You are getting an inferior product than from a pharmaceutical product. And so those are the, the ways that we recommend the transdermal approach, there's actually a vaginal transdermal ring that goes across the vagina as well. And the reason for that is when you take estrogen by mouth, the way it's metabolized in the liver increases the risk of blood clots. So it's ideal to avoid that because when you Eat something. It all goes through your liver first, and then your liver gets the first crack at everything. And when your liver gets the first crack at estrogen, it's like, oh, I'm going to do all this stuff with it. And actually, it then increases your risk of blood clots. It makes things that increase your risk of blood clots. So if it goes directly in your blood, it's not going first to your liver. It's only getting to your liver basically dilute in the same way everything else is going through your circulation. So that's why the transdermal approach is superior. There's some people who for a variety of reasons can't take it and then and then we would re- we would use oral therapy, but that's mm. not the first line.
0: If a woman's mother had or has breast cancer, should she not be on hormones?
1: So it's very difficult to say who safely can and can't take hormones kind of in a podcast setting, because obviously there's a lot of questions to ask people. But in general, with that caveat, a family history of breast cancer is not a contraindication. But obviously everything needs to be done, you know, case by case, and you have to have a discussion with your own provider. But in general, a family history is not a contraindication. A personal history of breast cancer, absolutely a contraindication.
0: We just did a podcast on cannabis and the symptoms that it can alleviate um, both during menopause and just during life in general. Is is that something that you work with with your clients? Do you recommend it or do you have any particular feelings about cannabis for treating menopause?
1: I don't recommend it because there's no studies. There's absolutely no data. And so we we can't really tell people anything when there's no data, right? So I think that's very, very important for people to understand that we can't give guidance when there's no data. It doesn't mean that it's right to try or wrong to try. And if you live in a state when it's legal and, and you want to try it, it's legal. You can try it for, for however you want to. But um, I would never recommend it because there's zero data.
0: Okay, let's talk about weight. Is that menopause directly that's contributing to weight gain or is that just getting older or is that just we're not paying attention to what we're eating?
1: Weight gain and menopause is really complicated and most of what you'll hear about online is incorrect. So menopause is not associated with weight gain and I know that that bothers a lot of people to hear, uh, but there are is there's an excellent study called SWAN, which is a study of women's health across the nation. And what they did was enroll a lot of women from several different ethnic and racial backgrounds and then follow them from way before their menopause transition All the way through their menopause. And so they were able to follow people as they veered off into their menopause transition, right? And so they could compare both age, but they could also compare what was happening with menopause transition. And the shift to the menopause transition didn't accelerate the weight gain. So there wasn't an acceleration associated with the menopause transition. There was a gain in weight, but it was age-related, not menopause-related. And so that's a really important thing to sort of distinguish. Now, what menopause is associated with is the f- is the fat that you gain you know, as you're gaining weight across that transition is more likely to be deposited around your middle. So that certainly makes people often feel like they're larger than they are, right? So if you are putting on, say, five pounds over a period of time and that five pounds is normally evenly distributed over your body, right, versus those five pounds all going into one spot, it's going to make you look and probably feel a lot different than if it was distributed everywhere. And so we do see in the menopause transition that sort of central deposition of fat And we also see kind of a gradual loss as well in muscle mass, right? So the rest of your body might also be getting a little bit smaller because, because people aren't doing the kind of like heavy work with weights that are kind of needed to maintain muscles. And I mean, that's. Uh, lots of us, when I said, you know, it's, it's something that it's, you know, women have rarely been encouraged to be active, right. in that kind of way only, only until recently. So those two things, you know, kind of affect the shape of your body. So I would absolutely endorse the fact that body shapes change, uh, and why that weight is gained around the middle. We actually don't know. Um, there's all kinds of complex hormonal changes that happen with menopause and it it's it's clearly related to that to those, um, but we don't actually know the specifics behind it. And so, I caution anybody who's told to take hormones for weight loss, or that there's like hormone tests to identify that, you know, reproductive hormone tests. That's all untrue. Um, and we do not recommend hormones for weight loss or weight management or anything like that.
0: Well, shoot, that I don't have something to blame. That sucks. <laughs> it's disappointing to hear
1: well it's it's the way we're designed for for whatever reason and i think yeah. that that our lack of seeing um, appropriate mo- role models physical role models in the press in the movies and all of these things gives us this sort of body dysmorphia around what happens during menopause now as we gain weight around the middle that also increases our risk of diabetes and so mm-hmm. it can be a health concern for some people as well but the fact that body shape changes a little bit just in the same way it changed in puberty right we went sure we were shorter and we got taller that's yeah. something that we should be talking about more as opposed to only celebrating a woman in her late 40s or 50s when she looks like JLo.
0: Why do you think menopause is so hot right now? I feel like there's this whole slew of celebrities who are selling products that are menopause oriented, their spokespeople, their companies that are starting. What is it about this moment in time that seems to make it so hot? No pun intended.
1: Well, I don't know. My my husband likes to tell me it's because I wrote a book about it and I started to trend. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, and, and, and okay. in many ways, you know, once somebody public does start talking about it, it certainly can start a chain reaction. But obviously, you know, I don't I don't think it's just me. Um, but I think I played a part in it. Um I think that, you know, uh we're now getting the generation of women that, you know, read Judy Bloom growing up and were had more comfort talking about periods. And we also have, uh, have social media, which makes it easier for people to talk about things in a more anonymous way. Um, and also connects people, right? So I think that that is kind of a, a magic storm. But we also, unfortunately, especially in the United States, have a very predatory supplement industry. And so, you know, the supplement industry sees gaps in healthcare, and there certainly are gaps in menopause care and they exploit it. So I, I think it's kind of a perfect storm. I think it's great that we're talking a lot more about menopause. I think it's terrible that people are ashamed about it, afraid about it, made to feel othered because of menopause. And, that, and I think it's terrible that people are suffering. Um, but I also think it's really important for people to recognize that there's a lot of people taking advantage. Um, and there are gaps in healthcare, and unfortunately, not everybody's working to fill them. It's so strange
0: that it's a taboo subject that people don't like talking about because we all go through it. It's crazy. I was at my daughter's um, college orientation and there was a table of like four women who I didn't know. And it was so hot. It was like one of those, you know, 90 degree days and it w- we were all crammed in and I was like totally sweating. And I said to the table, you know, are any of you questioning if you're having hot flashes or if it's just really fucking hot in here? And they all just looked at me like I was insane and ignored the comments altogether. I don't know if it was because I said fuck or if it was because I brought up menopause in that company or what, but neither one was particularly welcome at the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, you know, all part of the patriarchy, right? So we, we live in a society where women age out, right? Men don't women age out. How many movie stars in their fifties have, have silver hair, right? We call it gray hair for women. We call it silver hair for men. Why do we do that? All these things are related to aging out. Uh, And so I think that we've lost the concept of this sort of wise woman, this you know matriarch who has had knowledge and uh you know maybe the orcas are helping us out there cuz it's all the grandmother orcas bringing the boats down right <laughs> so um cuz they also go through menopause um so this uh this sort of collective wisdom this idea that you know women of course would have been incredibly contributory to society, we wouldn't have menopause if it didn't serve a biological purpose. I mean, we just, you know, we're, we're fairly finely tuned evolutionary machines. I mean, obviously there's glitches because with evolution, it only has to be good enough, but you know, but the, the idea that, that, that you become useless once you've popped out the last child and breastfed it is, you know, is a patriarchal concept. I mean, who do you want to keep down? You want to keep down the women with the most knowledge, right? Aren't they the most dangerous ones to the patriarchal (sighs) Uh, society? Yes.
0: Vomit. Yes. Are there any positives to menopause? Is there anything, um, I suppose, you're liberated and you can wear white pants but is there is there anything more that's that you have found your patients feel good about after or going through menopause
1: yeah I mean you know I, I look not having a period's amazing not having menstrual diarrhea is amazing. I, you know you see people who've had suffered their whole lives with cramps or with endometriosis or heavy periods and they're liberated from that right liberated like literally they feel liberated so that's amazing I think, you know, I think the idea that we hear from many women that they describe a certain kind of clarity once they're through that menopause transition. You know, some people can have a brain fog Uh, about 30% of people can have kind of a brain fog uh, in the menopause transition. It's not treated with hormones, by the way. And people tend to think they perform worse than they actually do. Uh, It's uh, there, people can have some issues with recall and some other types of things and, and maybe some actually effects on executive functioning, but that, that, essentially almost all completely reverses, right? So, uh, you know, I think that, you know, perhaps the fact that many women are multitaskers uh, and are doing so many things that um, that sometimes menopause is kind of a wake-up call that, hey, you know what, you can't be, um, you know, doing the grocery shopping, doing the cooking, doing the cleaning, working full-time and looking after the kids, it, you know, all by yourself. Like you can't, like that's, that's a lot for one person to do. So, um, so I think that, you know, we, we need to have more conversations about reality, about expectations, but, but yeah, once people are through the menopause transition, a lot of people describe a certain clarity. Uh, And so I think there's a lot of benefit to it. And, you know, I mean, it's not like we can't change that we go through puberty. We can't change that we go through menopause. Uh, And so You know, I think it's fascinating that, that we never hear, uh, you know, men talk about kind of the negative effects of aging, but obviously aging affects everybody. It's just, they're just, they've been brought up their whole life to think that everything happens to their body is amazing.
0: Yeah, of course course they have. I saw there was an episode on Drew Barrymore's show. And Jennifer Aniston was the guest and Drew was having a hot flash during the episode and Jennifer was kind of consoling her, but very distinctly didn't say, Oh honey, I've been there or I know what it's like or something like that. And I just found that interesting because she was just sort of like, Oh, this sucks, honey, this sucks for you. <laughs> and yeah. it just, yeah. me as interesting. Um, you had mentioned. Well, not everybody
1: has hot flashes too. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. so 20 to 30% of the population, like, Really, my best friend had one. One. Really?
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think it's really important to point that out, that a lot of the discourse about menopause is dominated by the negative experiences, which really frightens off a lot of people. And when people are led to believe that everything's going to be negative, they're actually, you know, more likely to be afraid of something, and fear enhances You know, negative experiences. So I think it's important that we hear from everybody that people know that there's a spectrum, just like pregnancy, right? You know, some people have difficult pregnancies and awful symptoms. And there are people who think pregnancy was so easy, they're happy to be a surrogate for somebody else, right? So there's that whole spectrum. I think it's just really important people hear that message that there's a whole spectrum.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, You mentioned brain fog, which is something that I am. Super familiar with, and I feel like many of my mom friends complain about, and that that's not treated with hormones. How is that treated?
1: Well, um, so I think, first of all, it's important to discuss with your physician and, you know, look at things like, are you getting enough sleep? Do you have sleep apnea? Have you had your thyroid checked? Because there's a lot of other things that can have that effect, too, are being screened for depression. Depression can have that impact. So I think it's important to look at all those things. important to look at what's going on in your life as well, looking at your nutrition. Um, And there is some data that says that for some people, actually, some of the ADHD medications might be helpful um, for brain fog, in the menopause transition. So it's always just important to talk with your provider, but there's actually several good studies looking at estrogen and cognition, and there seems to be no change. Um, but if you're sleeping poorly because of hot flashes, right? So if you're up five times a night because you're not getting a good night's sleep, then it would be very reasonable to say, well, let's try a trial of estrogen to see if sleeping better makes mm-hmm. your brain work better. Mm-hmm, hmm
0: And is estrogen what you would prescribe for women whose libido has just tanked and they have no sex drive at all? Is that dealt with the same way as as other symptoms?
1: No. So the first thing I tell people who have libido issues, the first thing we need to talk about relationships, um, because a lot of times there's some of that that's going on, those relationship issues. And I actually recommend the book, um, better sex through mindfulness, which is all about desire. So many people come to the libido conversation with very false informations about sexuality. They kind of All the messaging we have is from movies where you're hot and heavy all the time. And Mm -hmm. the second your partner walks in the door is when you should want to have sex. But let's talk back to, you know, the case scenario I gave a little bit earlier where, you know, if you're doing the cooking, the cleaning, the picking up the kids and working full time. It might be a very normal response for you if your partner is not doing much of that to not have much sexual desire, right? Um, And sexual desire can wax and wane in relationships. It can wax and wane throughout your life. So it's important to understand that. Many people have what's known as a receptive desire, or they go through periods of time with that. So they're not spontaneously interested in sex much at all. But Mm -hmm. if their partner raises the situation and starts to, you know, then they're like, oh, maybe, maybe that wouldn't be so bad. And mm-hmm. for some people, desire even kicks in after physical arousal. So it's really important to start that conversation with the right information. First of all, the mm-hmm. other thing is important to find out if sex is painful because if sex hurts, you're not going to want to do it. And so a lot of people can have vaginal dryness. And so we want to treat that. And that's very well treated with vaginal estrogen. So those would be some basic things to make sure there's no pain with sex and to make sure that that when we're talking about issues with desire, we're all talking about exactly the same thing. So those would be the very first steps. And then it might be appropriate to try estrogen in the bloodstream. It doesn't really work that well for libido, but that would be one of those kind of middle of the ground reasons where you'd want to have a discussion of risk versus benefit and then and then kind of proceed from there.
0: Mm-hmm. How would you like to see the menopause landscape change in the future?
1: Well, I'd like to see all supplements regulated like they're pharmaceuticals um, because I think there's a lot of people get taken advantage of by, you know, vitamin companies and celebrities selling supplements and things like that. And I think that People deserve to know if a product works, uh, and I don't think it should be buyer beware. Mm -hmm. I would like to see far more stringent guidelines of uh, compounded hormones because there's a lot of people getting taken disadvantage of, like, for example, pellets, hormone pellets, not recommended by any menopause society Mm -hmm. anywhere. And I think that's really important for people to hear. Getting medical professionals to all agree on something in societies is actually really hard. So if you have all the top experts saying, no, 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 that really means something. So I'd like to see far more regulation and consumer protection here. And I'd like to see more really honest discussions about the range of experiences. Um, And of course, we need new therapies. I think that the new research that we have looking at um, the ADHD medication, for brain fog, I think we need to know a lot more there because, um, you know, that's that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And, you know, right now we're going off of just a couple of studies. And so it would be really great to have more information. So, um, you know, those are some of the changes I'd like to see.
0: Dr. Gunter, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Got Issues is produced by Kira Shine, Play Audio Agency, and me, Jill Smokler. We would be so appreciative if you could rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to check out the magazine, gotissues.com. See you next time.